Well, this has certainly been an historic week. On Wednesday, we uh, swore in a new president, our 46th, President Joe Biden, uh, and historically, our first Madam Vice President, Kamala Harris. And then, of course, President Biden gave his inaugural address, a tradition that every president does on the day that they're sworn in. They cast vision. They share their hopes and dreams, a little bit of their plans, their priorities for the coming four years. It's meant to inspire us. And I suspect most of them hope leave a little bit of an imprint on history to be remembered. John Avalon of CNN says, an inaugural address is preeminently a speech about the new president's values, about how he sees the world and America's role in it. At best, it offers a unifying vision and the promise of new beginnings. Now, let's be honest. How many inaugural addresses have you actually watched? Or maybe a better question, how many do you actually remember? But there are, from time to time, a statement that, that becomes etched in our American story. Who can forget Franklin Roosevelt's, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Or John F. Kennedy's, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Or President Lincoln, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in. Already, I've seen on the news speculation about whether there will be a memorable phrase from, from President Biden's inaugural address. The phrase that stood out to me was this, we shall write an American story of hope, not fear of unity, not division, of light, not darkness, a story of decency and dignity, love and healing, greatness and goodness. May this be the story that guides us, the story that inspires us, the story that tells ages yet to come that we answered the call of history. I don't know if anyone else noticed that line. I don't know if we'll ever remember that line but probably because we've been talking so much about story, the Bible as a story, and now Jesus' story. When President Biden talked about this story, it meant something to me. So let's talk about Jesus' story. Jesus, of course, never ran for public office. He was never elected to anything. He never had a, an earthly title like governor or president or, or even officially as king, and yet it didn't take long in his ministry that people started recognizing that he had true authority, and so they started calling him things like, like master, lord, rabbi, teacher, Christ, Messiah. They did, of course, at his crucifixion, nail a sign above his head that said, king of the Jews, but that was a disputed title depending on how you looked at it. Now, Jesus never gave an inaugural speech per se, but the story that we're looking at today from Luke chapter 4, some theologians and biblical scholars say was Jesus' inaugural address. Following Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness, just in the early days of his public ministry, 
he returned to the land of Galilee where he was from, and he began preaching and teaching, and we think probably performing miracles. Rumors started. People started hearing about him. So when he went back to his home village of Nazareth, people were starting to hear about the hometown boy and what he had been up to. On the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, the same synagogue where he had been taught the Jewish scriptures, where he had learned what it meant to be a Jewish man. And as a guest rabbi, especially one that we raised, he was invited on the Sabbath day to read the scriptures. And so they handed him a scroll, and he unrolled it to the prophet Isaiah, what we would say is chapter 61. And he read these lines, the Lord God's Spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for the captives and liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God. Now, the tradition would be when the rabbi would read the scripture that they would then sit and, and share some thoughts, a teaching, an interpretation of the passage. Jesus rolled up the scroll, he handed it back, he sat down, but he just said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. As far as we know, that's it. He read from Isaiah and said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's interesting, huh? What was Jesus trying to tell them? But I also think it's interesting, what, what did the people hear? I mean, clearly, this was a, a passage that had come to be understood as a, as a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Jesus seemed to be saying to them, and, and then this is fulfilled in your hearing, that, that I'm the guy. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. I'm the one who's anointed. I'm the one Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the Messiah. But there's no real indication that the people attending synagogue that day understood that that's what Jesus was trying to imply. They were interested in him. They were curious about him. They, they even seemed to respond favorably. They were saying nice things. It says in Luke 4.22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Now, there's a hidden message in that question. Isn't this Joseph's son? Joseph was a carpenter. And in those days, if dad was a carpenter, then, then you probably became a carpenter. If, if dad was a fisherman, you probably became a fisherman. They're saying, wow, he, he did a good job. Wow, have you heard about him lately? We thought he'd turn out to be a carpenter, but he's a rabbi, maybe even a miracle worker. They, they seem to be impressed or at least curious so far in the story, there's no hint of doubt or, or criticism, maybe even a little community pride. But pretty clearly, no one has comprehended what's going on. No one stood up and said, excuse me, are you claiming to be the Messiah? 
They just seem to wonder, who is this guy? What can he do? What's he up to? Jesus said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they just seem to be, you know, kind of impressed. Look at the local kid. Look how he turned out. Did they recognize him as the Messiah? I don't think so. Well, many of us might have been tempted to just take the compliment. The crowd seems to like me. Everybody seems to think favorably, favorably of me. Then so be it. But not Jesus. Jesus seems to, to read between the lines. He seems to read their thoughts that, that they're not understanding. And maybe that they're looking for something Jesus isn't prepared to give them. So Jesus says to the crowd, they're in the synagogue, undoubtedly, you will quote this saying to me, doctor, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. He said, I assure you that no prophet is welcome in the prophet's hometown. Jesus knew they were curious about him. Jesus knew they had been hearing rumors about him, including that he had performed miracles. Jesus understood what their true motive was. They came to synagogue out of a sense of duty, of religious responsibility. And now that Jesus was there, well, maybe synagogue will be a little more interesting today. Maybe we'll get to see a miracle. It was more about fascination, more about speculation, more about hoping to see a little magic show, possibly. They're curious about who this Jesus is, but they haven't heard a word that he said. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He basically says to them, I can't do it. No prophet has honor in his own hometown, meaning I I can't, I won't perform a miracle here because you don't approach this with faith. You're more interested in the show than you are about who I am and who sent me. Well, well, things turn immediately. This crowd that, that was favorable, who were impressed with Jesus, immediately become hostile. Luke 4, 29, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. They rose up and ran him out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built, so they would throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. In Jesus' time, there were basically two ways that, basically one major way that you killed someone, executed someone that, that you thought deserved to die. It was called stoning. But there's two ways you can stone somebody. Either a group can all pick up a, a bunch of fist-sized stones and throw them as hard as they can at someone until they die. Or you can take them to a high place and throw them off like a cliff. And when they hit the stones on the bottom, they die. Think about that. These are Jesus' friends, family, neighbors, people he had gone to synagogue with his whole life, maybe people that, that his family had done business with as carpenters. And just one comment, and they want him dead. On one, on one level, it's probably hard to imagine how could the crowd turn on him so quickly But how many times has history shown us what a mob mentality will do? Just a couple of weeks ago, there was an insurrection 
in our nation's capital. And I have no doubt there were people there who planned to do harm, to overthrow our government. But I also wonder if there were in that crowd people who were there just to protest but got caught up in the moment. Our own nation's history of lynchings People who, by day, were church attendees, respectable business people, law-abiding citizens, but in a, in a moment of, of anger and fury got caught up in what was happening. What about us? What if, what if we had been in the synagogue? How, how would we have reacted? Even the protests last summer, many started peacefully, but then became violent destructive, how quickly the human heart can turn. A, a favorable crowd wanting, wanting to see what this Jesus could do, and then wanting him dead. It's really kind of easy to read this passage and just kind of read along, and this is where it ends. They want him to die and just kind of lit it in there, but Forget the point of the message. So let's not focus just on the crowd. Let's go back to what Jesus was trying to say. Remember he read from Isaiah, the Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for the captives, liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said to the crowd, today, these words, these ancient words of Isaiah, this prophecy of a coming Messiah, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this isn't the only passage in the Old Testament that we now consider a, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. There's any number that Jesus could have chosen that day. If biblical scholars are correct that this was Jesus' inaugural address, why did he choose this one to read and say, this is fulfilled? I think there was something in these words that defined who Jesus understood himself to be as the Messiah and who he was called to serve, who his ministry was for. The crowd there was, was perfectly happy as long as Jesus was just reading a scripture and, and then maybe hopefully he'll perform a trick for us. They were perfectly happy to be adoring crowd. But Jesus had something much larger, much more significant, much more challenging in mind. He wasn't there to entertain he was there to start a revolution. Jesus said, I have come for the poor. I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. I've come to release the captives. Come to set the prisoners free. I've come to declare the Lord's favor. Favor for whom? Those who normally society just casts aside. This wasn't the only time Jesus said this. In his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are who? The poor. Those who mourn. Those who are outcast. Those who are rejected. Those who are hungry. Those who are harassed. 
Or remember when Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. And his followers said, when, when Lord, when, when were you ever these things? He said, when you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done it for me. Jesus identified his personhood, his ministry, his messiahship with the marginalized of society. Think about those who are drawn to him. The rejects, the outcasts, the sick, the sinners, people that were considered to be disreputable. Rachel Held Evans writes, God's preference for the underdog, for defending the defenseless and championing the cause of the suffering is a biblical theme too common to ignore. Hear that again. Too common to ignore. But we do, don't we? We do ignore this theme. And so did the, the crowd there in the synagogue. How easy it is to practice a comfortable Christianity, a complacent Christianity, a, a spiritually isolated Christianity where I can live out my relationship with God and never, ever interact with or serve those whom Jesus came for, who he said was his primary mission to bind up the brokenhearted, to release the captives, to care for the poor. The crowd said of Jesus, look, look how big and grown up he is. Look what a good speaker he's become. Did you hear what he did in Capernaum? Miracles. Who would have expected it? To the crowd there in the synagogue, Jesus was little more than a curiosity, a novelty, a, a circus sideshow act, an opportunity for a, for a little more interesting worship service than usual. He was like a hometown kid trending on social media. But the crowd in the synagogue that day were certainly not looking for a Messiah. They were not expecting God in flesh to walk among them. They were not expecting a God encounter in worship. They didn't care anything about the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, or the prisoners. They wanted nothing more to do with Jesus than to simply satisfy their curiosity and hunger for entertainment. And then go home for a good Sabbath lunch and a nap. It was just the appearance of dutiful religiosity. But just scratch the surface. Do you see how angry they got? How quickly? Just, just scratch the surface. Just challenge them a little bit. And they wanted him dead. Well, friends, what about us? What about our worship? What about our spirituality? Do we come to worship, whether it's in this place or, or online? Do, do we come to worship prepared to meet the living Christ? Do we come to, to just fulfill whatever spiritual needs we think we have? Or do we come prepared to be part of his mission to the world? 
When we worship, do we evaluate, did it feed me or not? Did it comfort me or not? Did it entertain me or not? Or do we come to worship prepared to have our eyes more opened, our mind more opened, our hearts more opened and compassionate to those Jesus called us to seek and serve? Are we prepared when we come to worship to have our hearts changed, to love those Jesus loves? Or are we simply content to be entertained? Are we content to perpetuate the status quo of comfortable religiosity? Are we prepared to be unsettled by the presence of the Messiah in our midst and go where he intends to lead us? Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was martyred for his stances, once said, a church that does not provoke any crisis, a gospel that doesn't unsettle, a word of God that doesn't get under anyone's skin, a word of God that doesn't touch the real sin of society in which it is being proclaimed, what gospel is that? Clearly, the crowd in the synagogue in Nazareth did not come to synagogue to be unsettled. They came to do a duty. They came in hope of entertainment. But what about us? On Wednesday, President Biden both gave a vision of what he plans to do as president, but he invited us to roll up our sleeves and be part of the solution, just as every president has in every inaugural address before him, telling us what he hopes to do, challenging us to do our part. It's easy to ignore them. It's easy to just kind of blame them when things don't go well. But long before any president ever gave an inaugural address, there was a king They didn't recognize him as king, but there was a king standing at a synagogue in Nazareth telling us what his kingdom was all about. A kingdom for the poor, for the brokenhearted, for the captives and the prisoners. And he too invited us to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Jesus said, whoever would follow me must take up their cross For what does it gain a man to to inherit the whole world but lose his soul? Take up your cross and follow me.